We're beginning our series, uh, beginning, we're continuing our series, uh, walking through the entire story of scripture. And it is a privilege to introduce to you our speaker for this morning. His name is Rich Spini. He's been a good friend of mine for many, many years now, and I'm just so excited to see what God is doing in his life. And so I've invited him to come and uh, continue our journey through the New Testament today. So please invite Rich. Thank you, Ross. And good morning, Restoration Church. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be back with you this morning and to continue your journey through scripture. Let me start with a story as we begin. When I was in college, I lived with some really great guys, some of my best friends, um, friends that I know will be lifelong friends. And we had so many great conversations and experiences and memories together. But one of the things that sticks out to us and one of the things that we take with us is each week throughout the year, we would choose a song of the week and we'd write it up on our whiteboard in our apartment and you know people got really into this people the neighbors would stop by to see what the song of the week was our other friends the people that lived on campus would come and always check out the song of the week and every week the song would get played sometimes to our neighbors displeasure quite loudly and quite repetitively. My one roommate in particular, Zach, um, when he's into a song, it's kind of the only song you hear. It just is on a loop and just keeps going, and that's not always the best experience. But um, anyway, this is something that was just such a fun part of our college experience. But one thing that a lot of people didn't know was that the song of the week wasn't just a random song. It wasn't just a song that was catchy or popular at the time, but the song of the week was always inspired by something that was going on in our lives, something that was happening in one of our lives or situations in that week. So let me give you an example. One week, the song was Barracuda because my roommate Luke cooked fish and literally the entire section of our apartment complex smelled like fish for the better part of three days. Uh, All of our neighbor's apartments smelled like fish, and we had to apologize to them. At one point, he was literally sitting in the bathroom with the exhaust fan on eating his dinner (laughs) because it was so bad. Um, Another week, it was Blink-182's first date because one of our roommates was going on a date that we were rather excited about. And there are many other... um, songs and and just memories that are baked into this playlist. And for us, this is something that is so meaningful and emotional and was just such a fun part of our experience. But if you didn't live in the apartment, the playlist is kind of meaningless. It's very random. There's not a lot of cohesiveness. There's not a lot of meaning behind it. The songs, honestly, aren't very good. So it's not really a valuable experience unless you know the meaning that lies beneath it and what you're actually looking at. And in a lot of ways, the Bible is often similar to the Song of the Week playlist to someone that doesn't live in the apartment. And maybe you're here today and you've had that experience before that, you know, Ross, to you, the Bible is meaningful. And maybe you know someone who the Bible is meaningful or to your parents, the Bible is meaningful. But, you know, for me, it just feels a little confusing. Sometimes it seems contradictory. Sometimes it doesn't feel like an overly valuable or meaningful experience. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Right now as a church, we're going through 14 weeks through the entire narrative of scripture, getting a glimpse into its arc, getting a glimpse into its trajectory. People knew that we loved the song of the week and it was meaningful to us 
but they didn't understand it because they didn't know what it was. And a lot of times the Bible is the same way. So today we're going to continue in where we are at the narrative. We're going to continue where we are in the story. But we are also going to try to understand our lens for Scripture. We're going to try to understand what the Bible is, what we bring to the table when we open up the Bible, and how we read it effectively and how that affects the meaning we derive from the text. So to do so, I want to begin just by asking a question. If the Bible said 2 plus 2 equals 95, what would you believe 2 plus 2 equals? If the Bible said 2 plus 2 equals 95, what would you believe 2 plus 2 equals? If Pastor Ross stood up right now and handed out a multiple choice test, and the question was 2 plus 2, and A was 95, and B was 4, what would you choose? So I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many are going with, you know, I don't know what's going on in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure it's four, so I'm going with four. How many are going with four? Okay. And how many are, you know, how many are going with the Bible going with 95? Circle of 95. And how many are unsure and abstain from voting? <laughs> yeah. And that's fair. That's a tough question. And to be clear, the Bible does not say this, but I think we all know the Bible says things that are sometimes challenging. And today I think that neither one of these approaches and initial responses is particularly helpful. So I want to walk you through kind of the thought process behind some of these arguments. One of the most common perspectives is what I call the Bible settles it approach. The Bible settles it when answering this question. And the argument, the thought process goes something like this. The Bible says two plus two is 95. The Bible is God's word. Therefore, God says two plus two is 95. And God cannot be wrong. Therefore, 2 plus 2 must equal 95. We don't need to debate it. We don't need to write books about it. We don't need mathematicians. It's clear 2 plus 2 must equal 95. That's the Bible settles it approach. There's another approach, the other end of the spectrum when answering this question. And that's the Bible is inadequate to answer this question approach. The Bible is inadequate. The Bible says 2 plus 2 is 95. 2 plus 2 is clearly not 95. Just go find anyone that's graduated kindergarten. Therefore, the Bible is wrong. The Bible is God's word, and therefore God is either an idiot or a fantasy, and Christianity is irrelevant to me. And maybe you know someone that has this perspective. Maybe there's someone in your family that has this perspective, and maybe this has held them back from coming to faith, from understanding your perspective. And as I said, neither of these approaches, neither of these arguments or thought processes are particularly helpful for us in understanding Scripture. Both fail to consider what the Bible actually is, and that is at the root of these questions. What is the Bible, and how do we read it? And both of these approaches assume that the Bible functions like an instruction manual. And contrary to maybe what you learned in Sunday school, the Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is not God's love letter to you. Don't get me wrong. The Bible certainly provides instruction. The Bible spurs love, but it is not formatted like either one of those things. The Bible is very different than the document that comes with your Ikea furniture. 
And understanding that, understanding what the Bible is, frees us and allows us to read it for what it truly is and derive meaning from it, opposed to placing expectations on the text that it was never meant to uphold. The Bible is not an instruction manual, but here's what the Bible is. The Bible is a diverse collection of ancient literature spanning a gamut of genres, time periods, and cultural contexts written by various authors. In the Bible, we have stories, we have songs, we have sermons, we have poems, we have history, we have letters. The Bible is a diverse collection of literature, and it was written a long, long time ago, and was not written all at once. Authors come from different belief systems and are writing for different purposes and are writing to different people with different belief systems and in different times for different reasons. Now, God guided the writing and compilation of these documents to point us to himself. Jesus says this, that you search the scriptures looking for life, but the scriptures, they point to me. God guided the writing and compilation of these documents to point us to himself, revealing his loving character and inviting us into his redemptive work in the world. Let me say it another way to reiterate. The Bible is a library, not a book. It's a library, not a book. And this library is divinely woven together in a beautiful and perfect way to tell one story. Namely, that God is love and he wants you to partner with him in creating and restoring. This is why we call ourselves Restoration Church. A church is merely a people around a purpose. So to be Restoration Church is to be a people of restoration, a people that are restoring, a people that are involved in restoring lives and hearts and minds and communities. And understanding that this is what we're looking at, that this is the Bible allows us and frees us to read it for what it is. Because here's the truth this morning. We are not a people of the book. We are the people of Jesus. We are not a people of the book. We are the people of Jesus. And the book points us to Jesus. The book teaches us about him. The book guides us and God uses the book as a tool and as a resource to reveal himself, to meet us there. But friends, we do not worship a book. God may be Father, Son, and Spirit, but he is not book. We do not worship a book, but we worship a God, a God that became human and lived among us. A God that didn't give us a rule book a couple of thousand years ago and disappear, but a God that is alive and active in the here and now. A God that shows us what it means to be human and invites us to participate in what he's doing. And that's where we pick up the narrative today. Last week, Ross shared about the birth of Jesus and how God entered humanity. And today we're gonna talk about the new covenant that Jesus came to establish. A covenant is a term that we don't use in our everyday vernacular very often, but it merely means agreement or arrangement essentially the terms or parameters of a relationship. Think of it as a perfect contract. And when someone steps outside of those parameters, when someone steps outside of the covenant, the agreement that was made, the relationship hurts. There's brokenness. There's pain. It's the way, not the way it was intended to be. 
the old covenant, the law of stone is the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. I know you guys have covered that in this series. The law that God gave to the people of Israel is the laws that we read today in our Old Testament, in our modern Bibles. And the old covenant was the parameters of humanity's relationship with God. It was given to Israel to guide them to their human vocation, which God had taught all along, namely that their job was to be a light to the nations, a light in the world, to represent God to others, and to love. Love was God's plan from the beginning, and the old covenant was given to Israel to point them towards that. Humans, though, because of their brokenness, because of their selfishness, because of their broken nature, couldn't fulfill the expectations of it. They couldn't keep the agreement. They couldn't keep their end of the arrangement. They didn't have the power to live rightly and had to rely on God's grace, which was the nature of the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was a system based on grace. And this is the time that Jesus is born into. This is the time that Jesus enters the time of the old covenant, which wasn't considered old at the time. It was just the covenant, the way humanity related to the divine. And Jesus, God in a body, enters this world, lives the perfect life, lives the life that God intended. And let's take a look into his relationship with the old covenant. First thing that is important to know is that Jesus doesn't throw out the old covenant. Jesus doesn't throw out the old covenant. Jesus doesn't say, you know, this is no good. We need to get rid of this. This is trash. Forget the old covenant. Forget you ever heard that. We need to get rid of it. That is not what he does. Second, Jesus doesn't update the old covenant. Jesus doesn't come and say, you know, uh, this isn't really culturally relevant. This could use a little updating. Can't you agree? You know, it's a little outdated. We could do better. Let's, uh, you know, go back to the drawing board, take this as a starting point, make some revisions, make some edits. Jesus doesn't update the old covenant. Let's take a look at Matthew 5. Jesus says, I do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, referring to the old covenant, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have not come to abolish them. I have not come to throw them out. I have not come to update or revive, revise, but I have come to fulfill them. He says, you cannot fulfill this, but I can and I will on your behalf. I'll take this burden on my shoulders and I take it on myself. I take this responsibility And Jesus, in perfect form and fashion, is the perfection and the completion of the Old Covenant. He fulfills the Old Covenant and creates a new arrangement. And this is why how we read Scripture is so important. Because the Old Covenant does not apply to you. Not because it's weird or difficult or outdated, but because Jesus, God in a body, God in flesh, through his life, death, death, and resurrection, took the burden on his shoulders and has fulfilled it for you and created a new arrangement. And this is why we can't just open the Bible, put our finger on a page, and treat it like an instruction manual. Because of Jesus, the old covenant is fulfilled and finished. The author of Hebrews says it this way, when God speaks of a new covenant, when God creates a new arrangement, it means he has made the first one obsolete. When God creates the new covenant, he renders the first one obsolete. So here's the truth. The new 
is for you. The new covenant is the one for you. Turn to someone sitting around you, give them a high five and say, the new is for you. So let's take a look at the new covenant then. Right after the Passover meal, Jesus sits down for a few remaining moments with his students. He knows that his time is short. He knows he is about to be taken by the authorities. So he says, I have no time for metaphors or stories. I need to speak plainly and directly. And this is when he breathes the new covenant into existence. This is what he says. I give you a new commandment. Go to church. Read your Bibles. Take your kids to Sunday school. Make sure you pray probably twice a day. Is that what he says? I give you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. Do you think there's a phrase he's trying to communicate there? Love is the essence of the new covenant. And Jesus sets himself as the ultimate example and definition of love. Love is our job description. It's our reputation. It's our mission statement. It's our goal. And it's the reason God created us to exist. The old covenant, the law that God gave to Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai was a law of stone, a law written in stone tablets. But the new covenant is a law of skin and spirit. The new covenant is one of skin. It is demonstrated by God literally entering a human body that he created, walking our streets, wearing our shoes, empathizing with us, inhabiting our neighborhoods, and showing us what it means to be human. The new covenant is one of spirit. God sending his spirit to dwell within us, not in a temple building, but now we are the temple. We are God's dwelling place. Our hearts are where God's presence resides. His spirit is alive and active within us and in our communities and empowers us to partner with him in his redemptive work. To say it another way, the old covenant was about what we do. It was about the rules and the laws we keep. The new covenant is about what God has already done on our behalf. For Jesus, love was the lens of understanding the world and is the way humans were created to live from the very beginning. And Jesus' students and the early church leaders understood this. Here's a quote from Peter that he writes in one of his letters. Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends on earth. One of his closest followers was with him for most of his ministry. What does Peter say? Above all love each other deeply. Above all, more importantly than everything else, above everything else you've heard, above everything else you've been taught, love each other deeply. Paul, arguably the most influential figure in the history of Christianity, planted churches all over the world, wrote the majority of what we have in our New Testament today. This is what he has to say. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing, not one of a few, not even the most important, the only thing that counts is faith and how is faith expressed by our love for one another. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, 
This is your responsibility. This is your vocation. This is your calling. To believe in Jesus isn't just a pathway to salvation. It is a pathway to participating in the new covenant. To believe in Jesus isn't an invitation to heaven after you die. It's an invitation to participate in partner with God in creating heaven in the here and now, to create heaven in your workplaces, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, in your home, and in your heart. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're questioning your faith or exploring spirituality. Maybe someone just dragged you here this morning and you're waiting for me to shut up so you can get that lunch you were promised. But here's what I'd say to you this morning. Just think about this. Take time this week and just pause to think and reflect upon this. Think what difference love would make in your life. How would love affect your finances? How would love affect your marriage, your parenting, your time at work? Ponder how the world around you would be different if we tried to live this out. And maybe, just maybe, if you're feeling compelled, test it out. Try it. Dip your foot in the water. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to believe anything. Just try in some real and tangible way to express an act of love to someone this week. But for all of us here today, what does this look like? Love is great, but what does it actually look like? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. I just wanted to see if you guys were still paying attention. You're good. You're tracking. I see you, Restoration Church. I see you. But to actually answer this question, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And you probably know this as the love chapter. Maybe you've heard it at weddings, most likely. But this chapter is not about marriage or romance. It is about how we live in light of the new covenant. In this passage, Paul writes things like, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would be only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. For us this morning to make the concept of the new covenant tangible and practical for you, I've written a modern rendition of this text. A modern version of maybe what Paul would write to us to express and elaborate on these ideas and truths in a way that's accessible and helpful to us in Bucks County in 2019. So let me read this for you. If I go to church every Sunday in small group on Wednesdays, but don't love others, I would be like a kid throwing a temper tantrum while you're on an important phone call. If I read my Bible and do my devos and pray each morning, but do not love others, I would be like a loud and obnoxious chewer on a dinner date. If my kids go to VBS, watch VeggieTales, and I listen to K-Love, if I have a chrome Jesus fish on the bumper of my SUV, if I live a moral life, if I say a prayer and check a box, if I believe the right things, if I have good theology, but if I do not love, I am nothing. Love puts the interests of others ahead of your own interests. Love sees the best in people. Love assumes good intentions. Love propels others to achieve their potential. Love puts down the phone and looks someone in the eye. Love thinks before it speaks, before it texts, and before it posts. Love asks thoughtful questions. Love has hard conversations when necessary. Love smiles at a stranger. 
Love makes someone's day. Love gives the shirt off your back to a friend in need. Love evokes positive emotions and surprises in good ways. Love takes out the trash and sweeps the kitchen. It takes donuts and coffee to the job site and brings flowers home. Love isn't bitter or resentful. Love doesn't complain or get easily annoyed. Love isn't entitled or inconsiderate. Love makes the phone call to forgive. Love goes out of its way to care. Love celebrates other people. Love relieves stress and reduces anxiety. Love elevates self-esteem and boldly affirms the inherent worth of every human being. Love accepts people and befriends people regardless of their race, ethnicity, sexuality, political views, or socioeconomic status. Regardless of their background, the choices and mistakes they've made, the places they've been, and the hurt they've caused. Love is humble and healing and hopeful. Love redeems, restores, and reconciles. Love is recklessly generous. Love is lavishly grateful. Love is excessively empathetic. Love breeds freedom. Love breaks chains. Love swings open doors, forges new ground, and creates beauty. Love persists, love prevails, love bounces back stronger each time. Love never dies, and love wins. This, this, my sisters and my brothers, is what it means to participate in the new covenant. This is what it means to take part in Jesus's new arrangement, but far more than that, it is what it means to be Christian. It is what the entirety of scripture from Genesis to Revelation points us towards. It is what it means to follow Jesus, but ultimately, To love is what it means to be truly human. To love is to be human. Love was God's plan from the very beginning. And as God, the creator and author of life, leads us towards love and we walk that path, there is abundant life waiting for us. As we close, I just want to return to the words of Jesus. Let's read this out loud together. I give you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Just as I have loved you. I imagine Jesus smirks and chuckles a bit to himself as he says this. Because little did they know, in a matter of moments, with their very own eyes, they were about to witness the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week. Will you stand with me and close in a word of prayer? God, you are good. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, we praise you because throughout all of time, your primary characteristic has been love. Your primary work has been redemption and your primary method has been humanity, has been us. We live in a changing and a broken world. There are good times and there are bad times, but we know that regardless of our situation, regardless of our circumstance, your love remains the lifeblood of creation. That through triumph, through tragedy, your love remains and prevails. God, increase us in our understanding of your love for us deeply root our identity in the firm fact that we are loved by you, that you have taken our spirit of captivity, of brokenness, of worthlessness or hopelessness and replaced it with a spirit of adoption and we are your brand new and beloved children. 
God help us live in light of that identity instead of in spite of it. And God, as a response to your love, as partners in your mission, as participants in the new covenant, let us reflect that love to those around us this week. God, you are good and your love endures forever. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you next Sunday.